Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 945. At the top of today's show, David Lorelo welcomes back Andrew Miller, who also joined us last October back in episode 891. The pair talk about things like postseason start times, relievers pacing themselves versus throwing at max effort, and how the new CBA could address robo-umps. Miller also talks about playing under minds like Mike Schilt and Mike Maddox, as well as the many great managers he has played with compared to some of his teammates. I've been really fortunate to see a lot of different sides of it. I know that, you know, some people, it's funny, Wainwright and I talk about it. The number of pitching coaches and managers I've had versus what he's had is, uh, you know, I think he's had three pitching coaches and three managers. I, I think I might have had three pitching coaches in one year at some point. So, you know, for me, it's a, a positive experience. And, you know, the ones that are good, when I get away from them, I can look back on it and I can certainly see why they were so successful. After that, Eric Longenhagen chats with Paul Sporer about attending First Pitch Arizona, even though they didn't get to chat during the event. Eric and Paul get into the intersection of the prospect industry and the fantasy industry and discuss some of the players that both are particularly interested in, including the impressive Adley Rutschman. Also, Paul is excited to tell Eric and you about his Spencer Torkelson fan club. And of course, I wanted to hear what you guys said about the 1-1 Spencer Torkelson. I'm, after all, a diehard Tigers fan and the founding member of Torx Dorks. Uh, It's currently just me, but uh, I'm accepting other dorks that want to root for Torx. Finally, Ben Clemens and Jay Jaffe get together to talk about the incredible shrinking postseason starter, which Jay recently wrote on. With a few exceptions, starting pitchers have simply not been going very deep in games this October, and the duo will get more into why that is. Ben and Jay talk about using starters on throw days and what all these workload issues could mean down the road, as it seems clear that many pitchers are exhausted after a shortened 2020 season. You know, we had all these guys, I mean, some of the best pitchers in the game, you know, ramping up with year-over-year increases of over 100 innings relative to last year. You know, just focusing on the Dodgers and Braves here, I've got Scherzer, 112 innings up from last year. Max Fried, 109.2. Julio Urias, 130.2. Charlie Morton, 147.2. Walker Buehler, 170. No wonder these guys are gassed. Yeah. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to meander over to the Fangraphs.com shop. We have great merch for you to check out, as well as our Fangraphs and free memberships, which continue to be the best way to both surf the site and also help us keep the lights on and the baseball analysis coming. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Andrew Miller, pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. And it bears noting the first repeat guest since I got involved with Fangraphs Audio 12 months ago. So, Andrew, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, David. Looking forward to it. Let's start with a subject that we touched on near the end of our conversation, you know, last October, which is your future. You are now 36 years old. You've been in the big leagues, I believe, for like 15 or 16 years, and you are about to become a free agent. So what comes next? That is a great question. I'm not 100% sure. I think uh, I have a a family with two young kids. I have a second grader and uh, a daughter who will be, she's in pre-K, she'll be a kindergartner next year that I love spending time with. And, you know, with school, it's more difficult leaving for a season to go to a place like St. Louis because he needs to be in school and eventually she will. So I've got some family decisions to make. I uh, I am older. I've had, a, as far as I'm concerned, an incredible run. This game has been so good to me and it's been a lot of fun. Our season didn't end the way exactly we all dreamed it would this year with a World Series title. So 
I think that's a, a, a little bit of something that might kind of give me a, a kick in the tail to, to consider, you know, going after another one of those. But really, it's uh, something I'll discuss with my family. And, and we're in the process of that. But I'm not totally certain what I want to do. And I'm not totally certain what even would be out there for me at this point. And let's uh, stick with kids, Andrew. At least one of your kids is a huge baseball fan, I understand. So that that being the case, are postseason start times an issue? You know, or perhaps I should say, do games end way too late on the East Coast and even the Central time zone? <laughs> Shoot, for me personally, they end too late, let alone for my seven-year-old. Uh, yeah, I understand that, you know, I'm sure MLB and all the networks do their research on on you know, why they start games at certain times and they have their reasons for that. But yeah, I have a seven-year-old who I guess he turns eight next week and baseball is his number one thing. He's obsessed with it. And we sent him to bed, you know, in the, the early innings of most of these games. And I'd love for him to be able to watch because I remember watching playoff games in those, in my formative years, watching the Braves in the early nineties and, and, you know, really growing attached to those teams and then the game because of that. So I wish he could enjoy it more. He gets up at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. And the first thing he does is turn on the MLB app and look at the recap. So they've still kind of roped him in. But uh, as far as being able to sit up and watch a whole game, unless I'm playing in them, unfortunately, he misses a lot of them. And I, I don't think that's great as far as, you know, building a, a future fan base, because if anybody's going to be it, it's going to be a kid like my son. And, you know, I, I hope that he finds a way to get more exposure to games. And I think that MLB would do good by doing that. So he is unable to watch much postseason baseball. When we spoke last October, you told me that you typically don't watch a ton of postseason games yourself. You know, A, you need a break from the game, and B, you know, you do want the family time. So that said, have you really seen much, you know, so far this year? I've seen bits and pieces. I don't know that I could tell you there's a, a pattern to what I'm watching. Uh, typically, if he's around and there's a game on, so... Like when we were in the divisional series, there were a lot of games on that were that were a little bit early. We would watch, and I see a lot of the early innings. It is a little bit of a sore subject. It's you know, I wish I was there playing. I wish uh, the Cardinals were still going. It, it's a uh, an interesting thing that you know we all commit ourselves to winning a World Series, and at the end of the year, only one team's happy. Everybody else is pretty upset with themselves. So it's kind of a tough thing. It's a tough pill to swallow watching other people get their chance to continue to play. But so far, there's been a lot of exciting games. Uh, I know that pitcher usage has been a, a great topic. I'm well aware of that. And, you know, I'd say probably the atmosphere in some of particularly you and I were talking about Fenway just looks incredible. And that's that's great for the sport and, you know, great for those players. Really, uh, it's pretty hard to beat getting to play in a place like that with, with fans that are that into it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about pitcher usage, Andrew. I know that Jay Jaffe is going to be talking about postseason starter usage, I believe, in another segment in this episode. I've been thinking a lot lately about reliever usage, and not necessarily only in the postseason, but also during the regular season. We rarely see late inning guys go more than one inning. You know, and a lot of times you will get like one inning, one inning, one inning, one inning with four or five guys. Do you think that that trend is going to continue or do you think that it is more efficient to develop more guys who can go multiple innings, including closers? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I think there's probably a way to do it in the sense that, you know, maybe guys go multiple innings on a more regular basis, but end up with fewer appearances particularly over the course of a regular season. And then in the postseason, it's kind of everything goes, you know, you, the, the adrenaline and, you know, the, the fact that the prize is so close makes it a lot easier, plus all the off days to, to manage heavier workloads. But I don't know that we're going to see 
anybody be able to find success throwing 90 or 100 innings a year. I think that's going to be incredibly difficult. I know that, you know, very few people have done it recently. I think Batances may have thrown 90 his rookie year and then 80 and then fell into the 70s, which is still an incredibly heavy workload. I think if you, at least from what I rem- you know, remember kind of watching it at the the leaderboard, if you get into the mid-70s, you're going to be in the top 10 in the league and in, in reliever innings. And that's a, that's a challenge because as – I'm sure the listeners are well aware being able to to find long-term success and consistency in the bullpen is is something that's uh, pretty rare. And if guys get used too much, whether that's early in their career or throughout a particular season, it's going to be really hard for them to to find consistency. And then the worst thing you want is to have a World Series-capable team and then not have your relievers fresh or sharp or available because you overuse them during the regular season. Along with uh, actual use number of games and innings, do you think it, it's an effort issue that pitchers are now trained to go max effort rather than to pace themselves? I think a little bit. I, I know that it's not that long ago when I made my debut and I started playing, but I think the, the change in pitching is almost like there's an entirely different generation now that's that's pitching in the game. And I think that that is something that, you know, the max effort, it's amazing that these you know, guys league wide, what they can do, how hard they can throw and how how well they can command it compared to what I, you know, saw when I first entered the league. But yeah, I think that maybe you miss a little bit of the ability to to pace yourself and to to find a way to last for 70 or 80 appearances or 75 innings or, you know, even two innings or seven innings as a starter. So I think that, you know, the training is so much better than it was even just a few years ago that it probably makes up for a little bit of it. But at some point, you just, you can't handle the workload or you can't handle the effort. And uh, I think that, you know, if you had to ask me, we're probably getting pretty close to to bumping up against that line. Yeah, I was speaking to Kendall Graveman prior to the game at Fenway yesterday about this. And I asked him if a reliever necessarily has to go all out every inning. And I don't recall that he said yes or no. Uh, I think he gave a thoughtful answer that hinted at both. Do you think that when you come out of the bullpen that you have to be max effort? I absolutely do not, but I think that everybody, every pitcher, you know, should find their individual kind of speed and effort and all. And I know that if I tried to throw every pitch as hard as I could, even when I was, you know, as locked in as I've ever been, it just created a lot of challenges for me. My ability to command the ball and throw strikes, my ability to just be consistent kind of went away. So I, I had to find kind of how hard to push the gas for myself. And then, you know, other guys can go further. And like I said, I, I'm blown away at, you know, the effort these guys can put in and still command the ball these days. But uh, speaking for myself, I know for a fact that you can find success without going at a 100% effort. Maybe I could have had a little more velocity, but I would have found myself in worse counts. And maybe I would have broken down earlier. So I think you have to find that happy medium that works for you and and what your speed and what your effort level is. And you, of course, did have very good velocity earlier in your career. You know, age has sapped a little of that as it will with all of us. But, you know, the slider has always been your biggest pitch. What has the actual evolution of that pitch been, though, Andrew? I assume that over the years there have been little tweaks here and there, maybe with grips or seam orientation or, or whatever it may be. Yeah, really not that much as far as changing the grip. The the pitch has certainly evolved. I, I used to throw it a little bit harder. I definitely, as my career has gone on, I, my ability to throw it, you know, back door or front door, you know, to my arm side has, you know, really kind of allowed me as my fastball velocity has gone down and 
as my ability to throw, you know, a hard back foot breaking ball has gone down. My ability to throw that pitch has really opened up and allowed me to compete. I didn't really have the the command of it when I was younger. Uh, so that's, that's something that's been kind of a positive progression as I've had to find new ways to compete. But yeah, honestly, I, it's one of those things for me that I've been very lucky that spinning a ball is just pretty natural. And certainly I, I've gotten better and I've taken tips and I've fine-tuned it or honed it, but it, it ultimately hasn't really changed that much. Whereas I've changed my fastball grip quite a bit. I've always been chasing a change up or, you know, various pitches or working on my mechanics. My my ability to, to spin the baseball has always kind of been what's come easiest to me. And I think that's, uh you know, probably pretty clear in the way I use that pitch and how I've had to lean on it throughout my career. And with spin in mind, how much did the crackdown on sticky substances impact pitchers this year? And what role, if any, has the players union had in the implementation and enforcement of the rules? All right. That's a big, long uh, question with all sorts of angles to come at it. So I would say, you know, certainly we can't deny that league-wide we saw it had an effect right away. I, I know that MLB has been threatening for a couple of years to kind of crack down on this. And then of course they kind of just came out and, and slapped an edict on everybody and said, this is what we're doing. Whether that, you know, had any input from players or umpires, this is what we're going to do. And for me, I kind of expected to see honestly a, a greater effect on the pitches. I, it's hard to tell who's doing what and how much they're doing it or how well they're trained. But to me, it's certainly something that, you know, personally watching, around the league, watching guys that, you know, are, are getting ready for games, guys in the off season, watching, you know, just following social media and seeing what's out there on the internet that had been, you know, something that was kind of like a, a quiet secret and had become abused and was affecting the game. And honestly, like we were talking about how well our guys are able to compete at a hundred miles an hour, how, how good all these breaking balls are. It's hard to imagine how anybody can get a hit with how good some stuff is. And, I kind of expected to see a little bit more of a dial back maybe and velocity is something that I don't think has been talked about that much, but, you know, just particularly the ability to spin the ball, but guys seem to adapt pretty well that we're using stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly think that the checks wall at first were, you know, pretty thorough by umpires. They weren't checking everything, but they were looking at a couple guys were ejected and, and suspended. Ultimately it, it's pretty obvious that that kind of relaxed. And uh, I think that probably, if it wasn't you, some writers on your sites have uh, pointed out that maybe the uh, sticky stuff has crept back in the game. I'm all for a level playing field, and I, I don't know how we get there necessarily. It's a complicated issue. You, know, you mentioned that if the unions had a whole lot of say, and the answer would be no. You know, we would like to have input, but the way it was implemented in the middle of the season, it just it, it wasn't conducive to us having a say, which is just the reality of the system. It's not a knock on MLB. They felt like it was time and really the only way to execute it in the middle of the season was for them to just implement the rules on their own behalf. So, you know, for me, I think for really every player, we want a level playing field. We want our fans to feel like it's a level playing field. We want people to go to the ballpark or, or turn on the TV or turn on the app or however they watch the game now to feel like they're seeing a competition between, you know, the best athletes in the world, the best pitchers in the world, the best hitters in the world, and there's nothing that maybe one person's doing something that, to give them an unfair edge. So I think we'll get there. Uh, I know the MLB is working hard on the baseballs. I, I think that they've done a pretty good job of trying to gather input. I know that they're testing them out. They did at the end of the AAA season, and I believe they're doing it in the fall league right now. But, you know, maybe some of the complaints 
for pitchers, if, if we can address those, we can get to the point where, you know, hopefully you don't have to enforce any sort of foreign substance rule, but if you do, you can enforce it well and make everybody feel like it is a level playing field. You mentioned umpires a few moments ago. The subject of robot umpires has come up quite a lot in the early morning hours today. We're speaking on Wednesday. You know, last night at Fenway, the home plate umpire, I guess I could say he did not have his best game, you know, with the strike zone. What will the conversation be when the new CBA is discussed? I guess it is already being discussed. Yeah, it's the, the CBA is being discussed. So when you start talking about something like that that involves the umpires, there, there's really now there's three people involved in the conversation. And to be honest with you, I, I really don't know what kind of say we would have on something like shifting from umpires calling balls and strikes to an automated strike zone. I know it's been discussed. I know that you know we will have all sorts of input. You know, eventually we're going to get to the point where, you know, I don't believe it's necessarily imminent in the sense that it's going to be done in this CBA. I've not, I, we haven't had any talks to my knowledge that have brought that up. But, you know, eventually we'll get to the point where players are in the major leagues that have seen it and have experienced it. And hopefully the technology continues to improve if it does get implemented to the point where everybody is comfortable with it. It's it's interesting to me. It's a, it's a big deba- debate among position players and pitchers in the clubhouse that, you know, position players swear that the, the strike zone would be so much smaller and they'd be, it'd be consistent and they would be so much better. And then pitchers are tend to argue, and this is the side I'm on that if you call the strike zone as it is, you know, the ability to throw kind of interesting pitches that aren't called strikes, like a high breaking ball, or the one that always stands out to me is a Zach Britton type sinker. You know, it's going to be pretty darn impossible to hit. I, I think I've seen Britton hit the K zone and then the catcher block the ball with his fastball. So I don't know how guys are going to hit that because he doesn't get that strike call. And if he did, he would be unhittable as far as I'm concerned. So I I hope that they're doing a lot of research and and getting a lot of uh, experience with it. And I imagine they will before it would be implemented in the major league game. But as far as the unions say on it, again, I'd have to defer. I can, I can check on that and get back to you, but I'd have to defer to, you know, to Tony or Bruce or some of the lawyers with us. And as far as the union is concerned, uh, Andrew, the ghost runner, is that something that will hopefully, in my opinion, become a thing of the past? Or do you think that we're going to see a continuation? Now, that is something that that will be negotiated as far as I know. And, you know, I I think players are pretty split on it. In a lot of ways, it's created benefit for us. It's eliminated, you know, for the most part, the, the 15, 16, 18 inning game, which I know can be exciting at times, but in the middle of the season can be a, a drag and, and can really create injury issues and, and cause, you know, people to lose their jobs. And all honestly, people get sent down because of those games almost every time. And that's not the reason why you want somebody to be, you know, sent to the minor leagues because they had to eat up three or four innings and everybody else's, you know, shot from having to throw an inning or two themselves. So it's had its purpose. I can understand the traditional side, which it sounds like you're on. It's also created some excitement, but honestly, I, I would have to dig a little deeper to really, you know, cast a vote one way or the other myself. But my understanding is it's really benefited the home team. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's uh, it's something that is up for discussion as far as I know. And I think uh, the way it's written in right now, we would revert to the no ghost runner on second base unless it's renegotiated and added into the the CBA this go round. And what about the universal DH? 
that is something that is going to be discussed again. It has come up repeatedly. I know we had it during the shortened season. It's one of those things that I, I think seems inevitable, but it still has to be negotiated. And, and certainly, you know, the two sides will value it differently. We hate seeing pitchers get hurt on the base paths or at the plate and not be able to pitch. We had it happen and, and honestly really affect our season with Jack Flaherty this year. And that's, that's not what we want to see. And, and, you know, with all due respect to the pitchers out there that think they can hit, they're not the most exciting hitters in the game. So as far as I'm concerned, the DH is good, but that's coming from somebody who spent the majority of his career in the American league. And, you know, I, I certainly can appreciate having David Ortiz on my team and, and what he can do. And, you know, it, it can be a little bit more of a challenge as a pitcher, but, I think the you know the, the fans probably come to the game more often than not to see a professional hitter as opposed to a pitcher who hardly gets any reps and is is trying to not hurt himself at the plate. Change of direction here. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about Mike Schilt not uh, returning to the Cardinals. Obviously, a subject that you need to that you should tread lightly on. But what is your your view on that decision? Yeah, I think uh, just like everybody else, pretty surprised. At the same time, I've just probably like everybody else tried to read between the lines and what has come out both on his end and from the, you know, the organizational end. And it would be dangerous for me to even, you know, throw a guess out there because that's really all I have at this point. My experience with the organization was great. Schultz to me personally was great. And then, you know, certainly, you know, I know that Mosaic is been thrust in this quite a bit. I, you know, I, I can't speak highly enough of him and the way, you know, the character that he has and the way he treats everybody. So I, I'm sure that there's something to the story. I just don't really have anything to add. And, you know, I, I don't know if we'll find out more, if it's one of those things that we'll just move on from and nobody will ever know. But something tells me that philosophical differences is a pretty vague term. And there might only be a couple people that really know what that means, but I certainly am not one of them. And Mike Schilt has certainly had success as a manager. You have played for a number of notable managers. I know Terry Francona comes to mind. I think you played for Buck Showalter and Jim Leland. I did. Joe Girardi, maybe? Yep. So, Andrew, with the caveat that everyone is unique in their own way, which of those guys is Schilt maybe most similar to in the way that he goes about his job? Is, oh. that, is that an answerable question? I don't know that it is. They're all so unique in, in different ways. You know, I've been very fortunate. You mentioned, you know, some, those are some pretty big names. I don't know, you know, how hard it is for a manager to get in the Hall of Fame. But as far as, you know, this generation of managers, those those guys are the, the cream of the crop in most cases. And they are, they're all just so different. And that's, I think that's what makes them special is they know how, what works for them and how they communicate well. And, and to me, that's everything about being a manager is it's communication. You have all these, the staffs are getting larger and larger, but all these people around you to, to to do a lot of the, you know, in a sense, you know, to kind of bad way put in the grunt work and all the, you know, the preparation as the manager, it's your job to communicate and keep everybody on the same page and make sure the information's getting to the players and that their, you know, egos are in check and that they're confident when they go to the player, when they go to the mound. And, you know, they all have different styles of doing that, different ways of doing it. Some are more, uh, you know, personal and jovial, kind of like, you know, Tito comes to mind. He was a lot of fun to be around and his attitude was, you know, always, you know, I don't want to say goofy. That's a bad way of putting it, but you know, it, it was a more, a lighter way of having it. And then you've had others that are kind of more focused and, and have a more serious kind of tone to them all the time. And that can work as well. So 
I've been really fortunate to see a lot of different sides of it. I know that, you know, some people, it's funny, Wayne Wright and I talk about it. The number of pitching coaches and managers I've had versus what he's had is, uh, you know, I think he's had three pitching coaches and three managers. I, I think I might have had three pitching coaches in one year at some point. So, you know, for me, it's a, a positive experience. And, you know, the ones that are good, when I get away from them, I can look back on it and I can certainly see why they were so successful. Yeah, speaking of pitching coaches, Andrew, what has it been like to work with uh, Greg Maddox's uh, less famous brother? <laughs> I think that's the way he he's described, right, Mike Maddox? <laughs> yeah, he call it, he refers to uh, Greg as little brother all the time. You know what? I had a great time with him. I, I uh, you know, he's great at preparation. His uh, scouting reports are you know certainly a strength of his, and you know I think our results as a as a unit you know spoke to what he brought to us. You know, I, I think he's, uh, you know, you want to talk about somebody that keeps it light and, and can be fun to be around. Certainly he fits that description. But again, there's a reason why he's been doing it for so long. And he's had so many, you know, so many great staffs. And I think he'll be able to do it as long as he wants. It's because he's good at his job. And, uh, you know, I think certainly, you know, he's left his mark on the game. Yeah. Am I picking up a little bit of past tense, Andrew, when you refer to the Cardinals? Possibly. I, again, I, I haven't really thought too much about it. It's something that, you know, we're I'm spending time with my family. We're we're moving, and and you know we'll sit down and probably have a heart to heart. I probably need to you know really have that with my agent. And yeah, I think there's a there's certainly a writing on the wall. But you know when that happens, I'm not ready to commit one way or the other. I guess. Sure, Andrew. There are several more things that I could ask you. I know that we have some other segments to record today, and I need to get to Fenway Park for what I hope is not another four-hour game <laughs> that kids across the country will not get to watch much of. So I guess we can we can close with that. Thanks, you know, for coming back as as a guest. Yeah, anytime you can uh, have me anytime. I'd love to be on, and uh, we can get to those other questions and. Enjoy Fenway tonight. Uh, what a, an awesome place to see a baseball game, especially a playoff game. No, thanks. Then next time we have you on, Andrew, maybe I can get you to talk about your 0.93 ERA in uh, 29 postseason appearances. So <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of teams that would like to have you on the mound this October. <laughs> well, thanks, David. I had a good time. Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to uh, Fangraphs Audio. And welcome to another Fangraphs audio segment. I'm lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen here with fantasy writer Paul Spohr. How's it going, Paul? It's going pretty well, Eric. How are you? I'm doing well. You and I were in the same place, like almost we were in the same ballpark, you know, 10, 15 feet from one another at one point during first pitch Arizona last weekend. And yet this is the first time that you and I have spoken because that's just the way the weekend goes for people who uh, attend first pitch Arizona. And so I wanted to do what uh, I have a tendency to do against my better judgment, which is just to move any of the personal conversations that I otherwise would have had with people onto the podcast to make content out of. So that's why I dragged you on here today. What did uh, what have you been up to lately uh, work-wise? I love it, by the way, because I, I felt the same way. It's like, ah, oh, there he is, my colleague and friend. And uh, we said hello, and that's really about it. It was a quick hello, and that happened with a handful of people. But no, First Pitch Arizona was great. Great to get back together after a year off. You know, October's kind of a chiller month for the fantasy folks. Obviously, we're winding down after the season, so I'm just putting out these roster reviews right now. Each team kind of going through it with a, a fantasy fine-tooth comb, looking at their their save counts, strikeouts, basically the, the, the basic fantasy categories and highlighting 
some players for next year too. A Best Buy, a player on the rise and off the radar, and then a hot take. Just something to kind of wind the season down. And then we really dial back up in November. There's not that much of an off season anymore. When I first started doing this, professionally you know uh, october november and maybe even a bit of december was a real downtime now it's like you get a couple weeks here in october so i relish them to kind of downshift and then turn it right back up in november yeah that's i'm in that mode my my uh downtime mode is always against my better judgment in like september after i've come off the road doing the 2022 draft showcase stuff, which has pretty much ended. There's one more big event in Jupiter, but after the perfect game All America in San Diego, that's pretty much it. And, you know, I hang out at home and do Arizona Complex League stuff until the end of the minor league regular season. And then this year, there was, there's typically a couple weeks between the end of the minor league regular season when instructional league starts. And that just Mm -hmm. wasn't the case this year here in Arizona. So I rolled right into that. You know, ideally spend most of my September writing up the the guys who are still prospect eligible, but have been in the big leagues and AAA just where it's easiest for me to pull like coherent data and video and uh, source reports because a lot of those guys were just in the big leagues for a while and kind of knock out those uh, individuals on the prospect list and then really roll into like instruction fall league, which is going on simultaneously right now. Uh, which is part of why we didn't get to spend any time uh, mm-hmm. during First Pitch Arizona together because I was just doing both of those things and being on a couple of panels at First Pitch Arizona. And now we're like full on into list season here where the Angels list is almost in the can and the other teams who train around there are in process and those will just sort of get banked once they're done to start to roll out after the World Series. So you're coming to Arizona. When you're on your way to Arizona, which you do at least once or twice a year, what is your process? How are you arriving here? What is the the transit like? When it comes to first pitch, obviously, fly out, want to catch games for sure. Now, this was probably my lowest game count in a while. You just guys were got unlucky with the scheduling this year, made it so that there were many mucho West Valley games. Yes, and for those that don't know, that the conference takes place in the in the Phoenix area and Phoenix, Mesa, Scottsdale, all kind of close there. But then Surprise, Peoria are a drive out. Surprise is a real hike. Peoria is kind of half that hike, and it becomes a lot. And sometimes you can say, "I'll skip this game in order of seeing these panels and hanging with these people," and you have other commitments. So I caught a couple games. It's still great to get out to the field, but there also wasn't the fall stars, which is where usually where you catch everybody. If you didn't get to go to the games, you at least get one look at all the studs who are there. But we went earlier this year, so no fall stars. So that made it a little bit more of a challenge. That definitely put a key focus on yours and the other prospect folks' presentation to open the conference on Friday morning when you go through each team and highlight players from every club and give us kind of the lay of the land. That's where I learn a ton and then kind of take those notes and say, these are who I'm going to look at over the course of the weekend. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it played out. And there was a lot of hanging out with people, checking out uh, all sorts of different panels, learning a bunch of stuff. But I gotta be honest, this is one of my lighter prospect inputs over the last several AFLs that I've been to, but I still did have some great takeaways of some guys that I got little stars next to for next year and beyond. Yeah, so first first pitch Arizona is only something I've been involved in since I've I've lived out here. Um I wasn't an attendee at any point. I've always just sort of been the local prospect dude who is, you know, on the explanatory prospecty panels where we have a fall league panel with me and, you know, other folks. Some of them are sometimes it's scouts, sometimes it's other writers. 
and we have like a folly panel and then we have uh one where it's just q a where it's literally just like yellow prospects name and then <laughs> and you guys give some thoughts go yeah did anyone who are the who are the names on the rosters from your perspective who you were the most interested to you know not just see yourself but to see how they perform over the six weeks worth of fall league yeah exactly and there was there was plus and minus the guy i've liked and mostly off of hype and reading about him initially was jj bladay i was kind of a jj bladay guy i think he could make an impact i thought maybe he could make an impact this year had a disastrous season did not get glowing reports from y'all but then that led to turning me on to cameron meisner who i was not as familiar with basically an unhyped version of bladay who uh, has been performing better. He, he's got the little green arrow next to him while Blade uh, has the red arrow. They're kind of two ships passing in the night. Uh, and, you know, Blade is going to need to turn it around to catch back up. I do love, too, when you get somebody that's hyped, you put the little mental star, and then you go out later that afternoon and they hit a homer. That's peak confirmation bias, and I love getting high off that. Let's be honest. I understand that uh, you can't go crazy with it and and take too much from it, but it is it is nice when you're like, ooh, keep an eye on this guy, and boom, he goes yard. But that's what happened with Meisner. Obviously, I'm not going to overdo it with him. I just know that now he's somebody to look at what day coming down. Joey Weimer was somebody that that y'all oh, had yeah. great things to say about. And just the when the video came up, it was like, holy smokes, I want to see this guy. Big physical freak, I believe, was uh, with max effort swings was what your, your note said or whoever put that, the note together on the yeah, Salt River. Funny. And huge <laughs> arm. And then it led to a great conversation with the with the – with y'all presenting that said the the freak factor is important. The guys who stand out and, and just have outlier skills are always intriguing, right? A guy with, you know, fifties across the board can be a stud, even a fantasy stud, but there's something about the guy that dots those seventies and eighties across his profile, maybe even with some forties and 35s, you know, you got an uneven profile, but those guys stand out. And Joey Weimer, definitely someone that jumped. And of course, I wanted to hear what you guys said about the 1-1, one, one, Spencer Torkelson. I'm, after all, yeah. a diehard Tigers fan and the founding member of Torx Dorks. Uh, it's currently just me, but uh, I'm accepting other dorks that want to root for Torque. So, yeah, it's interesting. The J.J. Blade and Cameron Meissner, both Marlins outfield prospects. Blade coming out of Vanderbilt was a top five pick, really performed on Cape Cod before his draft year. And then you know, it was like a relatively short D1 track record of performance in part because during one of his underclass years, he was very injured. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just had like a belly flop 2021. Was not the type of guy who like any of those college hitters from a couple drafts ago who missed 2020, what would have been their first full pro season because of the pandemic, they basically had to come out and hit right away this year because you're already looking at someone who's, in Blade's case, 23 years old. At double Um, A. Like, that's put put up or shut up time, really. 2020 would have been, like, ideally you're reaching and performing at double A, and he kind of flopped there a year later. Cameron Meissner from Missouri was, like, tooled out. Swing and miss, college guy, a la Hunter Bishop, a la Jaron Kendall, a la George Springer. Like the track record for guys like this is pretty mixed. Sometimes they become George Springer and sometimes they, you know, are just Jaron Kendall. And sometimes they are still in that like 
maybe he will, maybe he won't bucket like Cameron Meissner and Hunter Bishop both are. Like mm-hmm. huge tools, swing and miss college outfielder. Meissner seemed to pick it up later in the year. Like there were relevant adjustments that were made and he started to perform. And he does have pretty serious tools. So he's he's also 23. Can I ask about a name real quick with regards yeah. to day In terms of a trajectory comp, that's really it. I don't really think that they compare skills wise or anything like that. It's basically just the way you, what you said about Blade with the one college year and falling off reminds me a lot of where Jonathan India was. And didn't they both go five? Oh no, Blade went four, India went five. But you know, had that great year at Florida, only seemed to go down on prospect lists from there, from then on, like which just started high because he was a top five pick and then down, down, down comes right. out, looks like he's putting up an NL rookie of the year. And again, I'm not saying they have the same skills, but is there any of, of that to Bidet where he can still turn it around and when he gets to the majors, he'll be like, Oh, this is the guy we loved when he was right. a top four guy. Or was he just simply overdrafted as a, as a Vanderbilt product? No, that's interesting. Um, you know, India, for me at least, India began to fall when there were some makeup-related incidents. Not like bad off-field stuff, at least that I'm aware of. Just like, you know, we all saw him get reamed out one day on the backfield for like coming to the field without all his gear on. He was – everyone was stretching and he was still kind of getting dressed. Mm-hmm. And like then his body kind of took a turn for the worse – And there were just – it was all sort of extraneous stuff like that where we just rounded down from a 50 to like a 45 basically as in like, you know, is this guy really going to be an impact big leaguer such that I want him on my 100 or is he just more likely to be a role-playing type guy? And it could be – we don't really know. It could be like being around Joey Votto changed this person materially as like an individual – and that is manifesting itself on the field. I don't know. Like it's definitely with India specifically is in that realm for me where, oh, should – now you could ask yourself, should we have stayed on that guy? Is there something about J.J. Blade that will awaken? Like I don't have the same – the reason you know that we would come off of Blade is basically like his performance is a huge red flag. India's was always just sort of lukewarm like this is fine but not impactful performance. Yeah, that's fair because uh, Blade was legitimately awful. Twenty three years old at Double A, yes. India meandered through. It looks bad here already. Like correct, it's not looking great here in fall league right now. But and then like you know that's how India looked. His fall league too was like just bad. But yeah, it's an interesting comparison. I do think, you know, the way I try to think about it, and from my perspective, is like I take what it's not a an actual literal bayesian approach like i don't have a bayesian model that i'm using mm-hmm. but that mechanism where i want to try to keep in mind my priors like at one point jj blade scouting directors were like you're too low on this guy you're too low on this guy he crushed the cape with wood the tracker for those guys is great he crushed a huge conference as a junior. You know, the tracker for those guys is great. It's a lefty stick that's, but you know, there's a high probability utility because it's like a lefty stick. Like there were all sorts of reasons to be on this guy. And it, like you mentioned it before, to look at him visually and scout him visually was just fine. Like, you know, it's above average this and that. Nothing's elite, but everything is sort of in that range. And so that's a good everyday big leaguer. With, you know, a a relatively high degree of confidence and we tend to rank those guys close to 50th overall. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, things began with Blade. 
and uh, and yeah, it has he's been sinking a sinking ship since then. But also, all that stuff from before still exists, and to to keep that part of it in the mix is what leaves would would have left someone like me in better position than other publications on Jonathan India to just remember like, no, this kid was just a dude in high school. We've been watching him since high school and he's always hit fine and then had, you know, a gigantic junior year at a, in a huge conference, et cetera, et cetera. Like we should kind of hold on to that stuff still. Uh, and yeah, maybe we should be doing that with um, Blade. I do think, you know, that's what Cleveland did with Shane Bieber was, hey, you know, this guy as a sophomore was unbelievable and then kind of fell off. But if we're looking at the bigger picture and weighing that more so than recency, then we're just, we're not like still all in on this guy. Like, no, I don't care. He's awesome. You're just in position to still take that guy when the value is good. You know, if you're a dynasty league or- Yeah, you're not going to run completely the other way and just say out on Bode, he's the worst. It's more of like, I'm going to lower the ceiling of expectation but I don't want to forget everything based on the one right. awful year. Uh, and really, too, though, because uh, 19 was was pretty bad, too. Like, his minor league record has just been flat bad. And it's essentially been one full season, 619 plate appearances, four Bleday, 694 OPS. So, yeah, I don't want to bog down too much there. But uh, as, as somebody who also liked India and then kind of – I find the same trajectory there where I just want to keep one foot in and at least keep an eye on Bleday. Doesn't mean I'm drafting him or going and picking him up in Dynasty Leagues because I don't know. Like, I'm not in uh, Dynasty League right now, but I feel like he would be dirt cheap at this point. I think people are ready to sell low. Yeah, that first panel on Friday, I was like 10 minutes late for because I, you know, I don't know if I would call myself a Luddite yet, but I'm trending that way. <laughs> I have the charging cable for my phone is frayed and gross and like I desperately need a new one. I have purchased a new one in the past, but my phone yells at me when I plug it in to the new cable. It's like, this isn't the cable oh, that's that you bought Oh, that's not compatible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you cheating so, on me with a new cable? Yeah, I'm going to take six hours to charge because <laughs> I don't well, like and you, this inside me. Didn't you also go to the hotel that it's been at for like a decade? Right. This so, is a brand new hotel this year. Right. So I, the crux of this story is my phone did not charge overnight. And I don't really look at my phone in the morning. Like until I leave the house, mm -hmm. I'm not going to touch it. So... Until I got in the car, I did not realize, oh, my phone is still dead. It did not charge overnight. Yeah, because I called you and I was like, it went straight to voice. It went straight to, yes, I had so many messages from people. But yeah, on instinct, I was just like, oh, well, I'll just hustle to the hotel and it'll be fine. Yeah. Without double checking where, right. And, and you would have been in, on time at that other hotel. Which was closer to my house than the old hotel. Exactly, exactly. So it all worked out, though. You got in after I think like a yeah, team, but a horribly embarrassed. No, no, don't, don't worry. Nobody, uh, you had coverage, and nobody, <laughs> nobody thought thought lesser of you for it. So yes, luckily, it, and it was a great panel too. My scout buddies just, you know, crashed the conference. And he was walking in to say hello, <laughs> and then they're like, "You need to go on stage <laughs> until Eric gets here." He's like, "Wait a minute, I just woke up." And it to, was awesome. Part of, you know, well, how you know life is crazy for folks right now is like that scout and I are good friends and sitting next to him on that stage is the only time we still, he's another one where I just like haven't spoken to him in months because of busyness. Mm -hmm. And yet I sat like our thighs were touching <laughs> on the stage and we still just haven't had like any kind of conversation. <laughs> like it was just like, oh, look at you. Here you are. Thanks for covering my ass. 
and now I'm going to, you know, sit, we're going to share a microphone and then we're both going to go see you. I'll I'll see you in three months. Who are some of the other, uh, the other fall leaguers who fantasy folks you think really want to know about based on buzziness? Like torque, we know what torque is. Yeah. We think like, all right, middle of the order, plug and play stud. 35 plus bombs, you know, all-star level first baseman, better than Pete Alonso has been basically. Mm-hmm. What about the other guys who are more curiosities? I'll nominate someone. Curtis yes. Mead. That was one that Jason Collette was really fond of. I believe he, that's the guy he said has the look of Evan Longoria, like the legit just kind of looks like him, not so much that he is him statistically or anything like that, but like, whoa, this guy gave me a an Evan Longoria vibe. He's only 20, and, um, you know, with the Rays, that could mean he's gonna, not going to be up for like seven years, uh, unless it's Wander Franco. <laughs> I actually was tepid on Franco coming into this year because of their tendency to be very slow with guys. It had nothing to do with Franco. It was just concerns for them. But Meade has hit all the way up. He came over from Philly. Uh, he's hit all the way. They even gave him a, a little sprinkle of AAA at the end of the year as a reward for his A, high A season. They skipped AA, gave him four games in AAA. He, of course, went six for 14 just to kind of put a little icing on the cake of his season. Is he somebody that can be up next year or is it really 2023 with him? Does he have to go for the full year of double, triple A at third base with the Rays organization or can he make leapfrog at some point in 2022 in your opinion? So yeah, this is a fascinating prospect. He popped up on the Philly list on our site a couple of years ago as, hey, like this Australian teenager has a really athletic swing and that's kind of it. Uh, Super duper raw from an approach standpoint, super duper raw defensively. Then, yeah, the Rays kind of stole him from Philly. The Rays made a 40-man crunch trade where they traded a lefty named Chris Sanchez to Philly. Philly was just kind of trying to backfill their their upper-level pitching depth. And the Rays were trying to kick the 40-man can down the road because they knew Sanchez had value, but that he was going to get squeezed off their roster for next to nothing if they didn't move him. So they kind of took a flyer on this Mead kid. And then since then, like, he's just exploded and... Had a gigantic year as a 19, 20 year old split between mostly low and high A. And then, yeah, had this like, in my opinion, it's to game other teams' models to send the 20 year old to AAA for a couple uh, days. And okay. the opposing team's models are going to juice him. Uh, they sent me to Australia last winter. And when there was no Fall League uh, last winter, I was watching a ton of like Dominican Winter League, Venezuelan Winter League, Australian Winter League. And Meade was incredible over there, but still could not throw the ball accurately to first base from third base. That's difficult. He gotten much, much better at that. His body is regressed in kind of a weird way. But yeah, it's like still his stance in the box is like Longoria's. His swing is athletic in that way. There is like big time plus bat speed here. This kid, the metrics like uh, some of the hit data that I've sourced is impressive on this guy. When he makes contact, he's hitting the ball very hard, uh, especially for a 20-year-old. He's not a polished hitter. What we're looking at here, by the way, folks, is like a 108 max exit velocity, which is like a shade below the big league average. But again, like 20-year-old Australian kid with not a lot of playing experience and a 23% barrel rate, which is above average. And again, 20-year-old Australian kid. So there are lots of like profile-related roundups aspects to this guy. His approach is still very aggressive. I'm still not sure what's going to happen with him defensively, although 
that has gotten better. So there's like an extreme amount of variance here, but this is probably a name that a lot of more casual folks don't know. And there's like tip of the iceberg shit going on here that I think makes him super duper interesting from like a deep fantasy sleeper perspective. And like if folks like buying sports cards and all that stuff, like this is one of those guys who's got a chance to explode in a special way and is maybe worth a, a flyer. Yeah, re- really strong played skills, very young, Curtis Mead, and would definitely cost more than Christopher Sanchez at this point. Though to <laughs> Sanchez's credit, he came up to the majors. He wasn't too bad. Decent little uh, 24, going to be 25-year-old lefty next year. I'll give him a little a little love as somebody who could be in the, in the back end of a bullpen. But again, Mead would cost more at this point if you were trying to redo that. And if the Rays flipped him, they would absolutely crush oh, the Sanchez yeah. return. So yeah, like someone like Curtis Mead, even I don't play fantasy baseball. I play diamond mind baseball. It can sometimes be hard for me to be in the frame of mind that writes from like the POV that benefits fantasy players. So like Jacob Amaya with the Dodgers is a shortstop mm-hmm. prospect who was towards the very back of the top 100. Um, and he's, you know, on that line this year, had a bad offensive season. He's on the top 100 because... He's a very good defensive shortstop who I project will perform like at a competent offensive level with like no impact. So that guy, I feel comfortable. If you told me that someone was going to be that in real life, like just be like, you know, a really good everyday shortstop who hits eighth, that still is like a low end 50 for me. But fantasy players, like they don't care about that guy. Not unless he, not unless he pushes that 55 speed into some fantasy steals. But like Curtis Mead has a chance to be an impact offensive player, I would rank Meade behind Amaya on a, on a prospect list that's trying to ascertain real-world baseball value. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a dynasty league, I would definitely rather have Curtis Meade because he has a chance to do something offensively that Jacob Amaya does not. And that seems more valuable to me. What are some of the other like bridges to gap in terms of prospect writing communication with the the fantasy community it's so much with that defensive value that shoots somebody up a list that uh maybe newer or even moderate dynasty folks take your list at face value for fantasy and you know catchers will be moved up right because catching value in real life is tremendous but in fantasy yeah it can be tremendous when they pan out like adley could be a god if if he if he clicks right away but they're also catchers are notoriously slower to come together with their hitting, you know, because when you come up, uh, the way I understand it is teams are usually like, you do not worry about hitting. You control the de- the pitching here. You worry about focusing on your defense. That is usually the number one thing when they first come up to the majors is figuring out how to catch at the big leagues. And then that's why they seem to be late bloomers as a, as a group. Obviously there are individual instances that go the other way. So I think catchers are a big split between looking at your list uh, as is and then taking that into a fantasy draft. And I guess that would translate to the other key defensive positions up the middle, sh- short, second, and center field. And I think that's where Amaya fits in too, like you're saying. So I think catchers and middle infielders, short uh, center fielders as well. Also the guys who on the other end where their fantasy value is much higher is the empty speed dudes. Like I was saying earlier, if Amaya turned that 55 speed into something special where he's, you know, running for double digits, us fantasy folks would overlook a lot of, a lot of warts to get, you know, 15 to 20 stolen bases if he could really do that. Meanwhile, you probably didn't 
you're not going to rank. I mean, Billy Hamilton's not the right one to say because he had great defensive value, which would help him rank higher on your list. But I'm trying to think of guys that are speed only. They can't hit that much. They don't have great defense. They're not going to rank that high on your list. But for fantasy purposes, right. if they find that team that will give them 500 plate appearances a year, they're going to have a lot of value for us. So I think it's defense and speed one way or the other can kind of dictate where your lists can veer differently from the fantasy lists. Gotcha. Like like uh, Juwan Bay, right? Is, doesn't oh, he have yeah. some flaws? But he has massive SB upside. So we love him. But I think uh, your folks, you and your folks would be a little bit more tepid on him because you got a 45 on him. Right. Yeah. Like he is in that, hey, this guy looks like a potential leadoff hitter without – like he's the type of guy who maybe is on the 100 when he's on the precipice of the of the, the big leagues mm-hmm. and is more in that high probability area. But uh, – yeah, he's a good player. There have been folks who in baseball who have advocated for him to be towards the back of the 100 already too. But, uh, but yeah, speaking to Rutschman, just here's a freaky stat for you. Ali Rutschman had a 6.7% swinging strike rate in 2021. <laughs> oh my goodness. Switch hitting catcher who had the best, who had like one of the top three BPs at the Futures game, basically him, Francisco Alvarez, and Brett Beatty. Uh, had like the best three BPs at uh, the Futures so that's, game. That's two catchers there, by the way. Yes. For folks paying attention. He's Adley is an elite defensive player. He had a 6.7% swinging strike rate at AAA, which was among qualified minor league hitters, the 21st lowest swinging strike rate. Like that, the other guys in this range are like Tucupita Marcano, you know, who's like a hit tool slapsters. only guy. Yeah, Tanner Morris. Uh, Xavier Edwards, like some of the other guys who have hit tool driven profiles, but that is sort of it. Adley is, is not far behind those guys in terms of swinging strike rate. And also, uh, only a 35% ground ball rate. That's incredible. Crazy. That, that, that's incredible. Like he's, he's the guy that breaks the rule for me. Like I don't draft young catchers, generally speaking. Yes. Uh, I will. And I'll be open to drafting him next year, even though he won't start. Well, unless the CBA changes, he won't start with the Orioles. They'll at least give him the Chris Bryant, you know, 10 day treatment, if not uh, a full month or so. But he breaks that rule because his plate skills are so great. I mean, he cuts a bit of a uh, switch hitting Joe Maurer profile for me in terms of, everything being there already and maybe already more power than than Maurer had outside of the uh the 35 homer spike year yeah Yeah. so I I love Adley it like I said he gets me to break my rule for sure or 28 homer not 35 excuse me but yeah the uh the the MVP homer year for for Maurer but I think Adley has more raw power than that to start to build on and he has basically a one-to-one strikeout to walk the insane swinging strike you said the defense is on lock like what can't he do i can't wait to see him next year i think it's going to be great he should be up for at least four and a half five months right i think so yeah i think his talent like wander franco's talent supersedes any of the other situational consideration Mm -hmm. in my opinion like you know i don't think you'd want to like a year ago, if you would have been like, yeah, I have Kelnick ahead of Wander Franco on my fantasy list just because of how soon I anticipate he'll get an opportunity, I would have said, like, that's probably getting a little too cute. Like, the gap in talent there is so sufficient that you just want to be on Wander. And just ride it because he's that good. And he showed it. Right. And if you were making a situational decision, you would just be on Rosarena or something. Yep. Like, who was likely to be up immediately. Just for context, if you're ta- if we're talking about like, all right, 
twist my arm, is Adley Rutschman, does he deserve to also be an 80 future value rather than just a 70? <laughs> what does an 80 catcher look like? I guess it looks like Buster Posey. Yeah, peak, right? peak Posey. Peak Posey is an 8. Johnny Bench. I mean, how many 80 catchers are out there? Posey's big league swinging strike rates throughout his career on average, 6.5%. So <sighs> if we're talking about like Adley as holy crap, you know, an elite generational player, I don't know. It seems that you can make an argument maybe um, that he should just be the second 80 future value prospect in the history of uh, Fingerhouse Prospect writing. All right. So over the, you're going to be working on your roster recaps. Who do you mm-hmm. have on your horizon? So I'm going in order of crappiness. So that means Washington <laughs> Washington just happened. Miami will be out tomorrow. Then I'll end the week with the Cubs. And then uh, we'll get to Minnesota next week. So I'm just following the draft order there. And it's been a lot of fun because it's also given me some stuff to, to look at for, for 2022 already with the uh, with, with like the best bets and, and, the, and the hot takes and all that. So I've been enjoying it. I think the readers have been enjoying it. It's just something to kind of decompress the fantasy season with before we uh, get crazy. I mean, I've already done two drafts because I'm an insane person, <laughs> but most normal folks are, are breathing a little bit. It's fine. Before we hopped on was watching. I found a YouTube account. That has high-speed video of amateur Japanese prospects. Oh, that's amazing. So I was watching Kenta Kazono, who was a first-round pick by the Yokohama Bay Stars in uh, the Japanese draft a couple weeks ago. I was watching high-speed video of him. The people in Japan really love baseball. Like this video of this kid has got 43,000 views already. If if my high-speed video of like Clayton Kershaw probably has like a fraction of that. So Right? I mean, that's incredible to be It's honest. amazing. Well, thanks for joining Fangraphs Audio this week, Paul. Uh, folks should look out for his roster recaps and uh, enjoy the fantasy content that all the folks at Rotographs are producing. Are you coming to the to the little mini Fangraphs trip? Yes, I'll I'll be yeah. right back uh, right, right back, back in town okay, in a good. couple of weeks. We'll go, we'll hit the Fall Stars. I have more prospects to talk about. The pod will still be running two to three times a week for the foreseeable future until we we amp up there again. People putting out articles every day. So yeah, we can still get your fantasy filled. Don't worry, but we're still giving you a break. We're not putting out eight articles a day for you to try to keep up with. Just a little, just a little taste to keep going because I know people like to step back a little bit. A lot of multi-sport players when it comes to fantasy uh, baseball, yeah, or they like football, time. basketball started last night. So we like to acknowledge cool. that the community is going to pull back. So why don't we pull back to a little bit. All right. Well, thanks for. I'm looking forward to seeing you out here in a couple of weeks. Um, to get we will definitely talk then. We will get some time, get to <laughs> hang, watch some prospects, and hopefully Joey Weimer goes yard in the fall. Star. I hope he makes the fall stars, but then I hope he he goes yard to show everybody that confirmation bias that I'm talking about when you put a little mental note next to somebody and they yeah. go off. But I, I appreciate That's you having my me entire on. reward system. It, it's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Like when you get something, and it it's driving all my playoff uh, vibe right now is just the 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 teams that I pick or go against on radio spots or podcast spots. That's the only driving force. So I've been very anti-Red Sox because of that. Sorry, Red Sox fans. But I keep clowning them, and they keep making me look silly. But finally, they lost yesterday. So yeah, I, I love that uh, that that reward system of, I like this guy. He did something awesome. But you got to be smart not to let it go too far. Anyway, Eric, appreciate you having me on. This was great talking with you. Welcome back to the podcast. For this segment, I, Ben Clemens, am being joined by Jay Jaffe, and we're here to talk about the incredible shrinking postseason starter. How's it going, Jay? 
Ah, it's going well, Ben. So you wrote an article this week, potentially late last week, but I think this week. Earlier this week. Earlier this week. About, I mean, essentially that. The fact that postseason starts are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so we thought we would just kind of dig in to, you know, what could have caused this, what the remedy might be, whether it's neat, whether it needs a remedy. But yeah, to set the stage, what, what's going on? Like, why are pitchers pitching so few innings? So yeah, it's it, it's a good question. And I, you know, I have been following this for the last few years uh, at Fangraphs and just, you know, kind of making some general observations about the, you know, I think as the trend towards shying away from letting, you know, letting all but the best pitchers go through the order a third time, I've been tracking the the contrast between regular season and postseason starter usage and, and they've come to parallel each other. And it's quite dramatic. When you go back to 2015, the average starting pitcher turn was, was 5.81 innings and uh, starters were throwing 65% of all innings. Last year, for the first time, it dipped below five innings, and that had some, had a lot to do with the pandemic and uh, the unique circumstances that created it with the uh, the short summer camp and the expanded rosters managers had yeah, a lot. Yeah, and how many double headers there were. Yeah, and the double the double headers too. Dipped to 4.78 innings, down a full inning in just five years. Uh, this year, it just barely crept back above five, 5.02. Starters threw only 50 57% of innings. We've seen the postseason start length dip below four innings as early as 2017. Uh, it's now been below five, four of the past five seasons. And this year, uh, it's down, at the time I wrote that, it's, it was down to 4.07. And uh, uh, it got as low as 4.01 before uh, Framber Valdez almost single-handedly pushed it back up. And it's not that these guys are pitching that badly either. You know, we're seeing uh, if you if you look at the earned run average, it's four point four one, but uh, it's about half a run higher than their FIPS. They're only averaging about two runs allowed per start, just over two runs allowed per start. If you we don't usually express run prevention that way, but you know if you, if you right. when you realize how few innings they're throwing, and you look at that, basically it's like once you've allowed that second run, you are not long for this game. is is basically what it seems to come down to. Um, you know, especially if that second run is coming early. And, you know, yes, uh, opener usage is having some amount of impact on these numbers, but there's really only about half a dozen instances of, of opener usage out of 56 games so far, uh, 56 starts, uh, you know, for the two teams, that's really weighing the numbers down. So, it, it, you know, I think it's a lot of a lot of factors. Yeah. I mean, if you look at yesterday, you could say, oh, starters are pitching, you know, longer now. Sale went five and a third, Arias went five, and yeah, Fromber went eight. But even then, the Braves had Jesse Chavez start. And even if you want to say, let's count Drew Smiley's, you know, bulk appearance as the start, he only pitched three and a third. Even when on days where it feels like people are going a bunch of innings, that works out to an average of five, right? Like, Right. It's actually pretty hard to get above five if you're if you're getting some ones and some threes and stuff. Exactly. There. Exactly. And and you know we've seen you know Chavez was a very effective uh, opener usage. Uh, not all of them have been equally effective. The Dodgers and, and Corey Knebel hasn't worked out all that well. You know, and the the Braves. Even if you exclude the Chavez start, they're below five innings per start, and they've had a very stable rotation. You know, they had one. You know, Charlie Morton had a short start. Ian Anderson had a short start. 
Uh, Morton's was at least on three days rest, so you could sort of understand that. But their starters have been effective, but but only five out of eight games have they have they gone you know even five innings. And so this is almost universal, and and it's been a surprise. Certainly, you know, I think historically speaking, we expect starters to be the stars of the postseason. They're you know right you know not everybody's Bob Gibson or Madison Bumgarner or whatever, but it's riding those workhorses you know through the three rounds and 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 to glory, and and that's just not happening right now. I mean, Max Scherzer, you know, who was an incredible. Uh, uh, midseason acquisition for the Dodgers uh, has come out of two ball games in the fifth inning, uh, having allowed only one run, but clearly not really right mechanically. His best start was in a losing effort or in a one nothing game. Yeah, where he arguably should have been pulled earlier. Yeah, where he yeah exactly he arguably should have been pulled earlier. The best starter in the postseason so far has been Logan Webb, and he's sitting at home because uh, you know the Dodgers were able to scrape through that series, and uh, Scherzer actually closed it out with uh, his his inning of scoreless relief, which is unfortunately for the Dodgers appears to have had a ripple effect that has just messed everything up as far as their pitching plans. Yeah, the Dodgers are really wreaking havoc on. I mean, they're not the only team to blame, as you wrote in your piece, but. They're definitely not doing anyone any favors by basically not only disrupting all their starters' rest schedules, but then using Tony Gonsolin yesterday so that they're going to guarantee a one-inning start today. Just opening with Corey Knebel, even when they're going to pitch a top-five pitcher in the NL in Julio Arias, it seems like they are kind of intent on just breaking up their appearances into sometimes logical ways, but sometimes using Arias' throw day to make him look kind of ordinary i i guess i'm not quite sure what the dodgers are doing but one one thing that is definitely an outcome of it is that their starters are not going as deep yeah i think you know the dodgers to be fair they you know they lost two of their top starting pitchers this this season trevor bauer obviously got suspended or is you know officially on administrative leave for his uh domestic violence related allegations uh, and Clayton Kershaw had a, a extended bout of or multiple bouts of forearm inflammation that that have forced him to be shut down to the point that he's not even available at all. And they never really successfully groomed a replacement starter for for him. Gonsolin had some shoulder problems this year and has has only been intermittently effective and not very stretched out. David Price was was kind of a bust because of some some elbow issues late in the season, so he hasn't been an option. Uh, they lost Dustin May to Tommy John surgery, and so what was once an embarrassment of riches turned into a scarcity. And and so they really entered the postseason with you know a big three, and then you know question marks. And you can get through a division series that way because of the off days. But by the time you get to a seven game series with the three with the three days in a row in the middle there, you have to throw a bullpen game or commit to a lot of short rest starts. And and you know obviously neither of those is is ideal for your pitching staff, even with you know, the higher percentage of off days relative to the regular season. And, you know, with the uh, uh, the use of these guys on their throw days, it has just messed everything up, particularly because the use hasn't been effective enough that those guys could complete clean innings. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're going to, if you're, if you're going to do that, <laughs> it'd be helpful to know beforehand if the guy could get the job done. It's one thing to throw a one, two, three inning. It's another thing to get so bogged down that the guy faces six hitters and you're, and you're screwed. And, uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen Arias struggle. We uh, the Red Sox. We saw Nate Uvalde struggle. Just less than ideal. You know, I I'm very skeptical of this throw day idea, and I'll give you an example of maybe why. When I asked some of my baseball listening friends about it, they said, "Well, it worked with Patrick Corbin in 2019." And I looked, and it, it didn't actually work with Patrick Corbin. He made 
two starts in between his various sprinkled relief right. roles. He went five innings and gave up four runs in one. He went six innings and gave up four runs in another. Those aren't mm. good starts. He didn't yeah. look good in them. It kind of seems like he was gassed. And it definitely seemed like Scherzer and Arias were gassed. I, I do wonder if some of the lack of length there, and I guess Yavaldi hasn't started since his relief appearance. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's that's the case. But you you wonder if he'll be somewhat com- compromised. And he threw a decent number of pitches in that relief appearance because yeah, it took a while to get completely blown up. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think it seems almost like teams and managers are, are attached to this, you know, romanticized, you know, memories of the past. I mean, you, know, you I, I go back to the, the Marlins in 2003, Jack McKeon using uh, uh, his starters on throw days worked out really well. Um, as recently as 2018, you know, Chris Sale and Yavaldi uh, pitched in the World Series out of the bullpen and, and were effective. And the long term, the longer term costs have, have, have been high. I mean, Sale underwent Tommy John surgery at the beginning of 2020 and, you know, went two years without throwing a pitch in the major leagues. You know, he didn't even make it through the 2019 season in one piece. Yeah. The Yavaldi usage in 2018 is interesting, too. He started as a starter. And then once they started using him as a reliever, they left him as a reliever, which makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't seem like teams want to use that plan this year. They, they want to have right. the guys throw on throw days and then go back to being starters. And I think the book is kind of out on whether that's going to work in today's baseball. Yeah, it's just not working. And I think really, you know, I think to me, the most uniform explanation to all of this, I mean, I know that, that it feels like managers are overthinking all of this. And, and one thing I noted when in the piece, when I was looking at the, you know, recent his, history going back to 2015, is that the last two years, the number of batters faced per start has kind of settled right around 18, which is two times through the order. It was 18.8 last year, 17.5 this year. It was uh, 19 plus and 21 in the years before. So it seems like, you know, kind of two two and through seems to be the way, the way that it's working. But the, the real thing that I keep coming back to is, is that this is just another outgrowth of how messed up everything is because of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, we had all these guys, I mean, some of the best pitchers in the game, you know, ramping up with year over year increases of over 100 innings relative to last year. You know, just focusing on the Dodgers and Braves here, I've got Scherzer, 112 innings up from last year. Max Fried, 109.2. Julio Urias, 130.2. Charlie Morton, 147.2. Walker Buehler, 170. No wonder these guys are gassed. Yeah. You know, I mean, and and... I, I don't really see a way around it other than if they if they had let, you know, teams carry 28 players for the postseason in recognition of the fact that these guys are on fumes. Um, and that only would have, I think, driven, you know, game times even higher. I mean, we're seeing so many four-hour games and they're just interminable. And I noticed uh, yesterday, in a, in a, this is Wednesday now that I'm mm-hmm. talking about, our former colleague Travis Sochik had some research that showed that every additional pitcher used in a postseason game increases the the average length of game by about 10 minutes. So, you know, if, if, if you could conceive of maybe another reliever or two per staff, you can see longer, you know, even longer games on the horizon, and that's no good. So I, I'm hopeful that this is an, that this is an aberration that's kind of an outgrowth from last year, you know. But we've seen injury rates were up 44 percent relative to 2019, the last full season. Uh, this is among pitchers, and, and 
you know, I just worry that this is going to be catastrophic. You know, have a long, have a much longer term effect on these guys. I mean, Arias has already had a major arm injury, a shoulder capsule injury. And he looks gassed yesterday. He looks toast. Yeah. Walker Bueller had Tommy John surgery right after he was drafted. Who knows what the toll is going to be for these guys? It's it, it, it's kind of scary to contemplate. And, and you know, you look all around and, and, and wonder, uh, you know, if Aldi's had Tommy John surgery. Obviously, Chris Sale's just coming back from his. You know, I hope I hope that we're not seeing longer term sacrifices necessary out of this. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that teams are right to be worried about this kind of thing. It a lot of teams went to six man rotations this year, and yep. they probably more teams probably should have. Pitching workload, I know that it's easy to say, and you know, you've heard a lot of people say this year, oh, those, you know, they could throw more innings. It's more about the stress than the workload. Right. It seems like it's about the workload, at least partially. And I mean, the Brewers, I think, are the only team that really stuck to their guns and didn't kind of cannibalize their rotation during the, uh, the postseason. And even they used Brandon Woodruff in relief. So yeah, well, that was more out of desperation. Like we, right. we needed our we needed our best guy to stop to stop these guys from scoring here, or we're you know going to be in big trouble. Yeah, that seemed more reasonable to me. Yeah, but they you know managed a six man rotation all year, and even then they chose to mostly avoid short rest starts in the playoffs, or completely avoid short rest starts, mostly avoid short rest appearances. And I do wonder if that'll pay them dividends next year. But it kind of looks like you said, like a lot of teams are. Just unsure of how to manage these workload increases. Because what do you yeah. do? You can't shut everybody down. I mean, I guess you got to score nine runs a game like the Astros are doing. <laughs> you know, getting outrunning those uh, those sub two inning starts by by just piling up runs and and making it a moot point. It's true. Yeah, if you score nine, it matters a little bit less how long your starter goes. I mean, it, it still matters, but it's st- it still matters. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm saying this tongue in cheek and with the benefit of hindsight, but you know, in in a lower scoring environment, those runs really do stand out, and they've helped save the save the Astros, whose pitching just looks shot. I mean, they're one win away from the World Series, and I can't I can't even think of of how how they're going to get through it if they if they do get through it just because you know Granky looks shot Luis Garcia has struggled I mean you know Valdez had a great start last night so maybe he's good to go but they've lost Lance McCullers who incidentally had one of the longer starts earlier in the postseason a, a six inning start against the White Sox and only 104 pitches but you know he too was in uncharted territory innings wise and uh, he's not coming back this year yeah, I don't know what you can say. It's just they're, if they win the World Series, they're going to do it with a bunch of pitchers who don't really look good enough to stay in games long, and they will frequently pull those pitchers out of games early. I mean, Jake Odorizzi, I guess, is in the rotation now, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of seems like they're going to have to, and I don't think they would prefer to. I think they'd prefer to save him for bulk innings when necessary, but just it's just tough when your pitchers are getting hurt and when Garcia has made two starts this postseason and he's totaled three and two-thirds innings. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, it's not great. Somebody asked me in a, in a chat, you know, one of our game chats the other night, how what I expected from Zach Granke. I'd said, uh, you know, he'd go through the order twice. He got through the order once, and it was, you know, and it was it was a grind. And you know, I was like, ah, I'm half right. <laughs> yeah, and I don't even think so, it was that wrong to pull him. No. Like I thought that was a no, not at all, not pretty at reasonable all. decision. I think it was. I think where, if I'd taken a moment to look where his pitch counts and physical issues were, I probably would have. I, I probably would have gone even lower. But you know, still kind of clinging to the idea that manager would actually have a vol, you know, voluntary decision as to when to pull his guy rather than like, holy shit, the house is on fire. We back, we got to get this guy out. Yeah, I mean, looks like what he faced nine batters. Yep. And three of them walked and none of them struck out. It's not great. Yeah, yeah, he was. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. So who knows what they're going to get out of him going forward? 
I mean, that's going to be, I think, the story of the rest of these championship series rounds and the World Series is just which teams best handle the fact that their pitchers are not right. And I think whoever does that, either by, you know, using the Astros model, like you said, and just scoring nine a game, or by managing the bullpens creatively enough. In the way the Braves did it yesterday, I think was pretty smart, where they got a little length out of Smiley, but <laughs> didn't try to push it too far. And, you know, once he got out of the game, they just ran through the gamut of relievers. I think that's the more teams that can do that and without gassing their relievers, which need to start worrying about now because their workloads are going to go up. Starters just aren't pitching enough. Yeah, Tyler Batzek has, who I wrote about today, Thursday, has uh, eight appearances in eight games for the Braves and Luke Jackson, seven, Will Smith, six. And, and Brian Snicker joked about how hard he's ridden those guys. But I think back to the example of, of Andrew Miller with the Indians in 2016. He was brilliant, you know, through most of the postseason, but by the end of the World Series, he was really dragging and he gave up two runs in, in game seven. And really, you know, while he was great in, in 2017, his career has kind of been downhill since. Yeah. Again, I worry about the long-term costs here. I mean, we're going to glorify whoever wins the World Series, you know, for stepping up and whatever. But, you know, I worry about where the, where the pitching goes from here for the particular players involved. Yeah. And I guess we should also say, hi, Andrew Miller. Thank you for being on our podcast earlier today. Oh, yeah. It's a, yes, it's indeed. Cross-promotion right there. Best of luck, Andrew. I hope, I, I hope the stuff bounces back. Agreed. Uh, on that note, I think that's what we've got. Uh Good luck to you fans who have teams left in the playoffs. Hopefully your pitchers get Valdez-esque length instead of Garcia-esque length the next time <laughs> out. I'm Ben Clemens, joined by Jay Jaffe, and thanks for listening to us on this segment of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Andrew Miller for joining us again. If you like what we do and want to give back, Tell a friend about the program or head on over to that Fangraphs.com shop and sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to hear about all our goings on delivered free to your inbox. We hope you have a good week. Thank you for listening.